All right, this morning is June 10th. It's 2007, Sunday morning. Our message is Sounding the Trumpet. Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 11, and uh, we'll read a verse there. Tell me when you're there. I have now been uh, preaching about 14 years, a little less than 14 years, ordained since 97, but preaching long before that. And uh, I never really had the burden of a senior pastor, whatever that is. To me, that meant the old guy that made all the decisions. And um, since, I don't know, May of 2003, uh, with the P-Rose assistance, I have to make all of those decisions. And sometimes it's kind of like, I, I can't see, there's Nick. It's kind of like you're so excited. Nick's got a new baby, right? And then it dawns on you. You have to care for it, feed it. And any mistakes you make show up in them. You know, children are a reflection of their parents in many ways. Well, guess what churches are? A reflection of their pastors in many ways. So if anything this morning sounds harsh, if anything this morning really gets under your skin, forgive me and realize that I understand it's my failing first. What the Lord began to deal with me about was the subject of giving. Now, there's only one door in there and Adam has promised to block the door if you try to leave. In 14 years in ministry, I've never preached on the subject of giving unless it was to rail against those preachers with the last names that sound like money and the silver suits and the slicked hair and the limousines. I have often mention them in my messages. It always bothered me that people changed the glorious gospel of God that was fishing for men into fishing for funds. And so I've avoided the subject at all costs. And that's been just fine as long as it was somebody else's responsibility to occasionally teach on the subject so that sheep knew what was required of them. But if I don't teach you and you don't respond, it's my fault. God began to deal with me way back in 2003 that I had never shared our vision with people outside of the church. And so I began to write a newsletter. This happened because God used a man in this room through a dream that he needed to share with us in our ministry. Mailed the check and told us he had a dream about it. And I realized that God, who is sovereign, can do anything. But my neglect in teaching and sharing about what God had called us to do meant that God had to take up my slack by giving a man a dream in the middle of the night and telling him what he needed to do. Now, the charismatic church is very spiritual. I'm super excited about that. hope you all have wonderful spiritual experiences. I never discount them. But should God really have to speak to you and tell you to do what His Word already says to do? I would love for His Spirit to be speaking to me about things that I didn't understand in the Word or things that are maybe disputable matters. He ought not have to speak to you and tell you things like be baptized. The Word says be baptized. He ought not have to speak to you and tell you to do lots of things that the Word dramatically says to do. And in my life, giving had been one of those subjects. One of the things that happened to me early on was there was such a profound change in my heart but a lack of a way to show it. I wasn't ready to preach yet. I didn't really know anything. There was only one thing that I knew that I could do, and I found a home in giving in that way. Does that make sense to you? Uh, you can be 90 years old, blind, unable to walk, but you can pray and give. You know, We're not talking about giving a lot. We're talking about giving of what you have. But in any case, read with me Hebrews 11, and then we'll get going. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Verse 6 is what I wanted to get to. And without faith, another way to say that, without trust, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly Seek Him. One of the key principles that is as true in the world as gravity is, is that God is only pleased with actions that in some way can be tied to trusting Him. This morning, I'm not going to teach on all of the things that faith has to do with, but let me free you of a concept. Faith is not positive thinking. It is not some unseen force 
that somehow energizes your life and makes your credit card bills go away or whatever the ridiculous garbage that you hear on the popular TV shows says. Faith is quite simply trusting that God is true. Despite all of the circumstances around you, trusting that what He says is true and then being persuaded that He's able to perform it in your life in some way. A great definition of faith, I don't believe, comes from Romans, or Hebrews 11, which is a good definition. I think the best one comes from Romans 4. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that his wife's womb was also, since she was old and long in years. But he reasoned in his heart without weakening in his faith that God was able to perform what he had promised. To me, that is a great definition of faith. So this morning, as much as at times I'm going to do something I never do, which is talk to you literally about dollars and cents, I want you to understand the real heart issue here is trust of God. It's not about financial gain. It's not about being under a curse. It's not about anything that preachers use as a tool to beat you with to get you to supply their needs. It's about where your heart is with God in trusting Him and putting His Word into practice. Does that make sense to you? It's hard to say amen to something like that, isn't it? Amen. All right. Well, amen. This morning as I um, was studying this, I found something. Uh, there's a pastor named Stu Weber. And this caught my, my attention because I had a very similar experience. But Stu has three sons. Two of the three were all state this and all district that and national merit finalists and brilliant people and good athletes and all the things that the world apprises. And his third that he called the caboose was not. Third because youngest. Now, I don't know how you grew up with your siblings, but I've seen what it does to somebody. If you have five or six brothers that are all-star athletes or standouts and somebody feel like they didn't fit. And yet God always uses that one. That was David. That was King David. That's why I preach about him all of the time. Well, Stu's third son... One claim to fame in life, his identity, was that on their frequent camping trips, he was the woodsman, right? None of the others could do what he could do in the woods. He could get the fire going. He could build the tent. He found an identity in Boy Scouts-type environment, while all the others were intellectuals and athletes. And his most prized possession was a pocket knife. Stu was turning 50, and his son entered the room before the party, wanted to make sure that nobody was around and nobody had seen it. And the pocket knife that had been identified with him forever and that was his most favorite prized possession, it literally was the only thing that he was good at is what it represented. He came up and gave to his father. His father began to cry when that box was open because he realized this was the most precious thing that his son had. I can relate to that. I got born again and good 30 days into the kingdom. The thing that I had wanted the very most, oddly enough, was a sog pocket knife. And God began to deal with me after I saved the money, which is hard to do at $4.25 an hour, to buy this $85 knife immediately. He began to deal with me, to give it away. <laughs> now, here's what's funny. God doesn't need a pocket knife. God could care less about your pocket knife. He wanted to see how much I trusted Him. Does that make sense? And I had all the same thoughts that you have. What will be done with my pocket knife? What if they don't appreciate my pocket knife? What if they don't even know, here's one, who gave them the pocket knife? And as God is good, He made sure that none of those things were evident to me. I didn't know what they would do with it, whether they would appreciate it, and He made me give it away in a way that they wouldn't know who gave it to them. You know why? He wanted to find out whether He was really my Lord. Adonai means owner and controller. And when He said jump, would I really say how high or was it lip service? Now, we can say in every area of our lives that, oh, God knows my heart, but somehow two areas Christians fail in continuously. One is we have this disproportionate way of describing our prayer time. We or overestimate our prayer time. Oh, I was praying for hours in the same way that we underestimate how much time we spent watching TV. <laughs> I don't watch TV much, just a couple nights a week, but, you know, the 15 minutes I was watching TV, this is what I saw, but spent hours in prayer. And you're a liar. I mean, it's just not true. Well, we do the same thing with giving. We say, oh, God, you're all of me. You're this, you're that. You, I love you with all my heart. I would do anything. I just forgot to give. 
Somehow or another, you remember to put gas in your car, though. Somehow or another, you remember to brush your teeth in the morning. God, I hope so. If not, keep your mouth closed the whole service. Somehow or another, we remembered other things. I want you to remember it's a trust issue. But before we get into so much of that, let's turn to Second Chronicles 30. Does it surprise you that we'll go to the Old Testament? Why would we do something like that? It's all right, you can talk to me. What's that, Nick? When the New Testament church that is so full of power, so enlivened with Jesus, so excited and doing miracles and all those things, opened a Bible to read it, it contained only the Tanakh, the 39 books of the Old Testament. A little bit of trivia for you, just for fun. Theirs actually contained 24. <laughs> so, well, how could they have 24 books and it be the same as ours? They combined all the minor prophets. They combined some other works. All same content, but they numbered them a numeral of 12. Does that surprise you? God seems to always work in 12s. Are you all in Second Chronicles 30? We're going to see a pattern here. I want to teach you about Hezekiah's Passover. And as we look at this, what you should see in this is you should see your life and how a gospel call went out and you got saved and how you responded to it and what your state of your heart was when you got saved and how God moved on you and what the natural responses to those things are. Right? Is that fair enough? Can we do that or should we just go home now? No? We can't do it. Captives, we can do it. All right. In Second uh, Chronicles 30, I should, shouldn't have warned you we were going to preach on tithing, huh? <laughs> that seemed to have taken the wind right out of your sail. <laughs> All right. In Second Chronicles 30, starting in verse 1, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Hezekiah lived somewhere around 715 B.C. And his span goes all the way to about 686 B.C. When was the Passover instituted? Way back in about 1600 B.C. I mean, we're talking about 1100 years earlier. So why on earth are we having to send a letter out to invite people to come do what God already said to do 1100 years before this time? And then, wouldn't it be enough to just send a letter to all Israel? Why does it say all Israel, all Judah, and Ephraim and Manasseh? Aren't Ephraim and Manasseh supposed to be part of Israel? Isn't Judah supposed to be part of Israel? They have the same problem we have. The church, the called out group of godly people was splintered. About half were in captivity under the Assyrians. About half were in the southern kingdom about to go into captivity under the Babylonians. And then among the groups that were there, they were fragmented and didn't at all associate. Now, that doesn't sound like this church uh, in America at all, does it? I mean, we're not split into Catholics and Protestants, are we? Oh, we are. And then among those who have split, we're, the Protestants aren't split into hundreds of denominations, are they? Oh, they are. And yet there's one body of Christ. And one message goes out to all the body of Christ. Be reconciled. Man and God, be reconciled. Watch this. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. How interesting is that? When is the Passover supposed to be celebrated? First month. In fact, when you have a Passover, even though it wasn't the first month, God said, now it's the first month for you. This was indicating that when you receive the Lamb of God, you get a whole new start and you ought to be able to say amen to that. How on earth do you then celebrate it in the second month? Well, they were already supposed to have got their whole new start many, many years before, and they needed to do it again. When I was in the Baptist church, they called this rededication. (laughs) How does this happen? Well, Numbers 9, verses 6 through 14, I'll tell you what it says. It says, if you're an Israelite, you want to celebrate the Passover, and yet you've touched death, you've in some way become ceremonially unclean, then God, as an act of grace for you, because He loves you and wants you to be able to participate, will give you an alternate time to get yourself right with God and celebrate it again. Now, if this was the story of Eric's life, what we would have right now is Passover 147, not just the second Passover. Because the number of times God has cleaned me up, put white clothes on me and sent me out to work in His kingdom only for me to find out i got grease on the elbows, mud on the hands, 
blood on the face and need to be cleaned up again is unbelievable. But the place in Israel that these folks are at is they haven't done what is right before God, although they were called to be godly. And so they're getting a second chance. And by doing this in the second month, they're literally saying, Lord, we're not as clean as we should be before You. Now, the silence in here is because you can't relate to this in any way, I'm sure. Me either. If you don't see sarcasm dripping off me, then something's wrong. How many times have we soiled the white garments God's given us? Found out that we failed to be obedient in areas that are painfully evident we should be obedient in. I remember one time reading in the Old Testament, find this story where they found the book of the law. I'm like, my God, how do you lose that? If it's your national constitution, how do you lose that? Have you never remembered that the Word of God said something months into activities that it clearly denounced? Yeah, I have to. Mm. Okay, so you want to get back in the Word? Yeah. Less commentary from Eric, more commentary from God? We could do that? Is that okay, Cody? Cody says it's all right. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests have consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. When there's a problem in the congregation, where does it show up? <laughs> it's the priest's fault. Husbands, you love the way that I teach on this in marriage counseling. When a husband stands and tells me, my wife is this and my wife is that and she's as cold as an ice cube and blah, blah, blah. I always turn to the husband and say, well, it's your fault. What do you mean? It's her. She does this. She does this. You're supposed to be the priest in your home. Why have you not taught her better? Well, I've tried. She just doesn't. Serve her. Love her. Do what Jesus does. She'll change. But, but she... I, basically, he's crying for a new wife. You do. You get a new wife. By God renovating the one that you have. As you love her and serve her like Jesus. By the way, ladies, it works the same for you too. You just don't have the same responsibility. He's supposed to be the head. Oh, I know. You've only heard that in a bad way that beats you down. Right? Like he's the head and you're the tail. When we teach he's the head, we mean he has a greater responsibility to be godly than you do. But your responsibility is not small. So back to Israel and the leaders. When there was a problem with the people, you didn't have to look forward to find out where it came from. The priests themselves had not even been consecrated. Well, this makes me examine my life. I begin to look, to counsel with my friends, to counsel with my wife, say, hey, are we setting the right example in our lives for people to follow? And I want you to know, this Word speaks to me first, to you second, if I'm going to teach it. I'm responsible for a greater judgment, James says. And I take that pretty darn seriously. So that being said, let's move on. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and the whole assembly. Doesn't it comfort you to find out people get something right, but it didn't come from, Thus saith the Lord God, you shall do this in this. They just had to do what seemed best to them, and then we find out they made the right choice. Isn't that great? Darren and Angie Shoemaker are moving here. I met with them, shared our church vision in an attempt to scare them off before they came. <laughs> Those of you that haven't heard our church vision out of Acts 16, it is kind of a frightening thing to find out that the people who were called of God ended up cha chained, stripped, naked, beaten in a prison cell, and that's when salvation occurred. That's not, you know, that, that's not putting out the sign that says, hey, you're a wonderful person, come here. You're a whatever. I'm trying not to quote popular church slogans. That is saying, hey, come unto me and I'll show you what you get to suffer for Jesus. And you know what? They said, this seems good to us. Then, over the next couple of days, God showed them why it was good, and they've accepted an offer, and they're on their way. So, amen. Thank you, Darren and Angie. God told us He would draw precious metals from the earth to us, that it was our job to shape them and mold them, but He would draw precious metals. What does that mean about you if you were drawn here? You are a precious metal, but that does not alleviate me from the responsibility to mold you and shape you. And I want to tell you the correcting thought that comes to me. I get frustrated with you. I want to be honest. Just like I get frustrated with my kids. It's not that I don't love you. It's just like I love my kids. I love you very much. Sometimes my expectations for you are higher than you have for yourself. And that makes me frustrated at times. 
I realize that it's my own fault if you're not living up to some area of your potential and that it's my job to spur you on, to encourage you, to love you, to nurture you, to try to see you realize your full potential in the kingdom. But in any frustration I ever have, the stern voice of our Father says, they are precious metals. Don't you treat them otherwise. So as much as I might hit you with a big flat hammer at times, hoping to reshape your life, I want you to understand to me you are a precious thing. That's why it's with fear and intrepidation I address a subject like this. It'd be a whole lot easier just to ignore it. I've never passed an offering box. I hope some of you have noticed it. <laughs> but I've never passed it. Never. Not at any time. Not in my whole church life or career. Because I believe that when you teach the people who they are, they naturally respond with what they should do. I don't want to tell you what to do. But I do want you to see this pattern. So they sent out this... Uh, Declaration. The plan seems right. In verse 5, they decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. According to the king, or at the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king, from his officials, which, which read, we actually have a copy of this, people of Israel, that literally means people who are princes with God. Israel means a ruler with God. So it could be addressing you. People who are Christ-like are rulers with Christ, the King of Israel. Could be addressing you. What's the next word? Y'all read it to me. Return. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for return is? Teshuba. Repent. Make an about face. You're headed in the wrong direction and need to come back. This letter goes out to all of those who are elect, all those who are called to be rulers with God, and it is correcting them. Most of the time, we have trouble putting up with sound doctrine. We want itching ears tickled. I know we read those Scriptures about someone else. We always make someone else the guilty party. But let's be honest. Would you rather hear a good sermon on the grace of God, full of lively, interactive sermon illustrations? Or the judgment of God? Of course, you would rather the grace. Me too. Let's swim in it. Sloppy agape. But what we need most of the time is to get close enough to Jesus to see where we fall short so that we can change. Amen. Amen. People of Israel, return to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that He may return to you who are left. That is a frightening principle, and yet it's in the Word. When you veer from the path that God has for you, it's not that He doesn't love you. It's that He does not love you enough to change His Word or His character for you. You ought to read those Scriptures in 2 Timothy about you being faithless and Him being faithful. Some of those kind of Scriptures. Romans 3 says the same thing. Because He cannot deny Himself. What this means is God has set certain principles in motion in the kingdom and in your life, and they're illustrated in His Word. And as you begin to veer from them, He does not go with you. Two young men that I have known, one comforting the other while he was in obvious sin, looked at him and says, Oh, brother, don't you worry, I'm with you. I had a heart attack. He said, No, no, you're not. I love all of you very much, but I don't love any of you enough to fall away from Jesus for you. I love Pedro with all of my heart. I'd be willing to stand with him in a literal, natural army or in the spiritual army of the Lord without second thought. But I will not follow him out of the kingdom, period. God's the same way. He says, you return to me so that I can return to you. We need to understand something. In this Jesus loves me gospel, we do not need to lose the principle that he's with us when we are with him. God will not bless anything that you do. He will bless what you do that is done for Him. He's your owner and controller. No employer will pay you your wages if you work at someone else's job site. It will not happen. Did I make it up or did He say that He may return to you who are left? A remnant, saints. It's always a remnant. Who have escaped from the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers so that He made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. 
Does that word stiff-necked ring out loudly and clearly to you? Stiff-necked? Can you think of any other time that it was mentioned in all of the Bible? It's only there once. Acts 7, Stephen stood and looked at the leaders of Israel who were rejecting a move of God. They were needing to Teshuba, repent, and go with God in a new direction. And because they were not doing it, he said, you are stiff-necked and always resist the Holy Spirit. wonder what he was talking about. Is it possible that he may have been drawing from this place in Scripture? Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which He has consecrated forever. Today, our sanctuary consecrated forever. John 2.19 speaks of Jesus being that sanctuary. Hebrews 7.16 says, because His sanctuary can't be destroyed, the power of an indestructible life, that Jesus is the temple of God. Corinthians 3.16 says, you, little Christ, are also the temple of God. Serve the Lord your God so that His fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn His face from you if you return to Him. How many times have you heard that the Old Testament was full of judgment? No mercy, no grace. The New Testament was the dispensation of grace. What did that letter just teach? That's what we would call the New Testament call. Repent that He might show you grace that His compassion might be on you, that He desires good things for you and is waiting for you to turn. Is that not the same God portrayed in the New Testament? Of course it is. Grace is everywhere in the Old Testament if we look for it. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, that's northern Israel. But the people scorned and ridiculed them. Is it any different today? Really? We all love messages that say good things about us. But what happens when a preacher really steps on your toes? There's only a remnant that are in church to start with. And then among those that are in church, there's only a remnant that takes it seriously at all. What do most people do? Billy Graham is somebody widely respected, so we'll use his name. Billy Graham's on TV preaching. The average person flipping through the channels, what do you do when you see Billy Graham preaching? Next channel. The average person, right? There's a call going out to the whole world, but it's ridiculed and it's scorned. And those that follow it closely, that adhere to it with their whole life, that ridicule and scorn falls on us, doesn't it? Jesus said that's because no student is greater than his master. If you're not being persecuted, perhaps you're not burning brightly enough. Mm. It's so easy to fit in. And I preach a gospel full of freedom. Not freedom to sin, but freedom to enjoy everything in the earth. But if you can find no distinction between you and the people you work with, something's wrong. Something's really, really wrong. You need to wake up so that you're not carried to the grave while asleep. Mm. The couriers went out and they got scorned. Verse 11, Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Why does it say they humbled themselves and went? To accept God's teaching, to accept His principles, always requires you to come from a position of humility. What's humbling about this? They had to acknowledge they haven't been doing it right, but they're Israelites. They're supposed to be rulers and princes with God, but they haven't been doing it right. How many Christians have you known in your life that would stand up before their peers and say, I have not been living like a Christian and I repent? Most will fight you for the date they were born again. I've got 20 years, like you're going to retire soon. Because it's like a badge of honor. (laughs) I've been saved longer than you've been alive. Well, you don't act like it. I remember somebody rebuking me and telling me that my zeal would wear off. It had for them. I guess they were talking about personal experience. You know? How sad is that? These people had to humble themselves. They had to come to a place where they said, we're not all we profess to be. Mm. Nevertheless, some of the men of Asher humbled themselves. Verse 12, Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind and to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered following the word of the Lord. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has to do with repentance in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. 
Feast of Unleavened Bread has to do with repentance. Does anybody know what the Kidron Valley is called? The Valley of Hinoan. Right now that's what it's called. In your English Bibles, translating from Hebrew to Greek and then from Greek to English, the Valley of Gehenna. They had to clear out altars from Jerusalem and throw them into what Jesus called hell. Why? Why would you have to get rid of altars? Because the problem with the people of God is that while worshiping Yahweh God, we violate the commandments and take other gods alongside Him. He said, well, what could we have alongside Him? Matthew 6.22, He says, hey man, your eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, the whole thing's good. And He said, what on earth is that about? Go back and read it. It's totally wedged between two other Scriptures. One that says you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You can't serve both God and money. That's what comes after it. What comes before it is encouragement to give to the needy. Why on earth would He talk about your eye being the lamp of your body and put it right in the middle of those two Scriptures? Because all of the rabbis taught that if you had a good eye, meaning you see what God wants you to see, and you gave to the needy and honored God in your life, that your whole life would be blessed. Couple that with what comes right after it. You can't serve two masters, both God and money. What was he really talking about? You cannot say that you love God and not show it in your finances. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Why? Because it's an altar in the city of Jerusalem, the city of the Most High God where His temple dwells has another altar in it, an altar with an iPod on it or an Xbox 360, or a Wii, or an Acura, or whatever, a house, whatever it is that is there. I've had lots in my life. But for this revival to take place, the people of God heard the decree that went out and did something immediately. Humbled themselves and began to throw away the other altars. And where did they throw them? Straight into hell. <laughs> it's one of the only times in church you can say, go to hell. <laughs> a lot of desires in our life did not come to us from our Yahweh God. They came to us from our desires for what we want, need. They don't typify faith. The only thing that pleases God is for you to show trust in Him. And what they show is that you don't trust Him to give you what you need. You're going to take of what is His and get what you need for yourself. Now, let's be honest. Don't raise your hand. How many times have you set aside money to do something godly with and had a need come up? and you did not use it for what you pledged it for. Piro was telling me a story. I can use you. He's, even if I can't, what's he going to do? <laughs> no, I know I can't. Piro set aside his tithes for a certain time period when he was a teenager. Put them in his ashtray, building them up. He's going to take them to the church. Has a little car wreck. Imagine that. Where did you, you keep the money? In the ashtray to the car. Had a car wreck. Would you believe that that amount of money was the exact same as the damages to his car? I'm not teaching a curse here. What I'm trying to say is God loved Piro enough to say, you give me what is mine first and then trust me for everything else. That's what he was trying. Don't tell me you can't relate to this, saints. I know you can because I can. You think it's hard in your personal finances? Let other people give you your money and you have to decide what to do with every dollar. Is it okay to buy my kid a pack of bubble gum that he wants? This is somebody's offering. The most humbling thing in the world. Where's Mandy Wakefield? You in here? She's the first one to ever share with me in giving in ministry. When we was filming Lafayette, Louisiana, a single girl is the first one to write an offering to our church. Jennifer and I sat and stared at that thing. I wanted to give it back. And yet I knew it wasn't right to do it. This wasn't an offering to me. It was an offering to our God. And now I'm entrusted with it. What do I do with it? It was a horrifying experience. So they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They throw their altars into hell. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were... What? Ashamed. Why are they ashamed? Because they hadn't taught what's right and now God's got hold of the people and they are more holy than the priest. You know what? We should have a relationship. We should have a relationship where it is not just me goading you and spurring you on to good things. We should have the kind of relationship that when I see the godly things that you do, it's convicting to my heart. And I think, 
wow, I'm their pastor and they all outshine me. And it should spur me on to more things. Now, I want you to know I'm trying to set a hard example for you. I get less sleep than most of you. I work pretty darn hard in a secular job and in church. I move. I fix your vehicles. I love you. I never turn down your phone calls. I do whatever it takes to see you grow. I'm trying to set the bar high as an example for you to surpass. Pero's doing the same thing. The priests were ashamed when they saw the people. Before I even get to this part, let me ask you something. We will never do it. I will never embarrass you. I've been given authority to build you up, not tear you down. But if we printed a month-by-month giving statement for each of you and put it on the board up here, would you be ashamed? If it didn't have totals on it, because it's not about totals, would you be ashamed? Are there two, three, five, six, twelve, eighteen months without your name on it? And yet we're obedient to God? It's my fault. I haven't taught you right, and I'm going to teach you. Is that okay? Yeah, y'all are watching that clock, aren't you? <laughs> oh, praise God. Praise God. I've never even been in a church where I've seen this done. The only way I've ever heard tithing preached on is give to get. Give so that you'll be blessed. I'm telling you to give where it hurts so that God will see you trust Him. I'm scared to preach on it for a lot of reasons. One is, some of you are weaker in your faith and you'll take it as a big slap in the face, and I know that. Some of you are so strong in your trust, I'm scared it'll encourage you to give more and I'm worried that I'm abusing you. Some of you go so far beyond 10% that there's one person in this church I actually had to meet with and said, you have no income. You can't keep tithing. How many pastors do you think would go do that? especially when I needed it. That's not to commend myself. That's some of you go way beyond. And I'm glad because it's the only way that you make up for those of you who have never responded to the call. Mm. They were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up the regular positions prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest sprinkled blood and handed handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Wow! They did it in the wrong month. They did it in the wrong way. This is a a law without mercy, right? No. Hezekiah prays for them. He said, they are not getting it right, Lord, but their hearts are right and they are trying to do something good. And the Bible says something unique. It doesn't say God didn't take it into account. It doesn't say God just accepted it. It says God healed them. The moment that they began to transgress God's way, they were sick. (laughs) Whether they knew it or not, they were sick. And Hezekiah's prayer healed them. One of the hardest things is that those who struggle in this area the most struggle because they don't have the money to give, they think. They're sick. And they don't know that the reason they don't have the money to give is because they have never given to God first, showing trust. That principle's been twisted into something that says give a hundred and get back a thousand. That is not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you God is looking for you to show trust. These people were spiritually sick and they had to be healed, but because of their right hearts, they got healed. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem, verse 21, what I just skipped is what I told you. For the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with great rejoicing and the Levites and priests sang to the Lord every day accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly. Verse 23 says, They enjoyed this so much that they extended it another seven days. You know what's interesting about that? Also, not in the law. Period. So I want you to get this. We have a people not obedient to God who receive a call of grace and mercy says you're not being all that you can be. Please, come to Jerusalem. Participate. Receive Jesus, the Passover Lamb, afresh. Get right with God. They responded so much, 
so powerfully that even the priests were ashamed of their behavior. Then in their zeal, they didn't do it all right. But God healed them because He saw the intention of their heart. They saw God's hand with them and they were so excited, they said, let's do it again. Can you imagine? The Passover lamb was a once a year event. They celebrated this again. They get so excited about it that even the foreigners and the aliens later in this chapter come and worship God. What would it be like if the church was really on fire for God, doing everything that He called them to do joyfully? The Bible says God loves a hilarious giver. Now, I know it doesn't say that in your Bible. It says a cheerful giver. But the Greek word hilarion is where you get the word hilarious from. He wants you to be able to do something so that you're laughing in the face of your enemy, showing trust. Look at verse 27. The priest and the Levite stood to bless the people, and God heard them for their prayer. Oh, well. Their prayer reached heaven. What does that mean about the times they've been praying before? Have you ever felt like your prayer was bouncing off the ceiling? Why am I not heard? Why am I not heard? Sorry, Adam. The reason is often that we haven't been obedient to what we've already been told. Have you never had a kid tell you he wants something and you say, first go clean your room? Huh? Are you going to give them what they want until they clean their room? How much of God's Word are you in open, blatant disobedience to right now, yet you're asking Him to meet your needs and do other things? See, that's convicting to me, saints. It is. And when it's convicting to me, I pass that right along to you. <laughs> See how we share in each other's sufferings? They get this right and they throw such a party in Jerusalem and do this not for seven days but for 14 and invite the aliens and the priesthood gets a revival. And watch what happens. Look at 31 verse 2. Hezekiah assigned the priest and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites to burnt offerings and to fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbath, new moons and appointed feasts as it is written from the law of the Lord. Before I get to verse 4, I want you to know, when this ministry is short, when it doesn't have what it needs, to meet its obligations. And sometimes those obligations have included paying your light bills. That comes straight from us. And I'm proud to say, in the month we had the retreat, I contributed more money than everybody else in the church combined. I'm proud of that. You know why? Because I did it while making less money in the calendar year than any year that I'd ever been married. Is that a great big pat on Eric's back? Well, if it was, I just lost it. But I'm telling you for your benefit, there's a reason it says that their leader contributed out of his own possessions. Why do you think he did that? Because he loved the Lord. He was not exempt from this obligation to show trust any more than they were. And he hoped to set the right example. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and the Levites so that they could devote themselves to the law of Yahweh. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount of tithe of everything. You know what the word tithe means? It means a tenth. And the tenth was applied to animals. It was applied to the fields. It was applied to any possession that you had. Even your children had to be redeemed before the Lord. Everything. When you don't give anything to the kingdom of God as an offering to the Lord in a month, what you are saying is there is no area of my life I received any increase and God deserves none of my trust. When that month stretches into three, five, six years, what does that say? And we'll dance before Him and praise Him and sing of our love and faith to Him, but what do our actions say? Oh, how about that? Put your money where your mouth is. I'm not asking you to give for my benefit. In fact, you're going to find out something. In fact, let's, let's go read it because now I'm feeling weird. 
Turn with me to Leviticus. In Leviticus, look at 27. By the way, I didn't finish reading it in Chronicles 30. It says that they received so much that the priest piled it up and the piles were so large that it met all of the needs and there was, get these words, plenty left over. You know why it said? Because the Lord had blessed them. Now let me ask you the chicken or egg question. Did the Lord bless them and that's why they gave? Or did the Lord bless them because they gave? Mm. I'll let you dwell on that for a little while. I do not want to turn into a prosperity preacher. I'm not in here passing a credit card machine around asking you to put yourself into debt. I'm saying in whatever way the Lord has increased you, if you made $10 last week, then one of it should have went to God as a minimum. Minimum. Period. Bar none. First time I ever had that experience, I was not even a Christian. I used to drag my lawnmower behind my bicycle to go cut grass. Judah was given a riding lawnmower from his grandfather. Yeah, what a blessing. (laughs) And I had a little envelope in my room. And when I made $20, I put two in the envelope. Oh, great righteous Eric. No, I stole from God and went and bought candy with it one time. I never felt so convicted in all of my life. What would you do if that was your kid? You'd scold them. You'd teach them. What do you do when it's you? When your cable television becomes more important than doing what's right before God. I love cable. I hope you all have it. I like to come to your house and watch it. I watch it in mine. I watch things that you might be surprised I would watch. I like boxing. I like all kinds of things. But anything that is an altar in your life that comes before God needs to be thrown straight into hell no matter what it is. Period. I can't tell you how many times He's put that to the test in my life. It's been easier for me to give away cars, and I've done that, than it was that first pocket knife. You know why? It was the first time. But now I've learned I cannot, cannot give something that God cannot give back to me, and He does. And I found such joy in it. I feel like I have taken that pocket knife that that little boy took to his daddy and I knew I scored big with the right gift. There's a guy named Mark Herman. I can't believe I always run out of time. I read Mark Herman's testimony on the web. He was talking about giving. He's a no-name guy from St. Louis. And he used to go to all of the Cardinals games and he was hoping to catch a home run hit by Mark McGuire, which means he had, what, 70, 80 opportunities? He'd been for 28 years trying to catch a foul ball. And he's a believer. And he'd pursued this with lots of time, lots of money, lots of attention. He's standing there on a Sunday game. Sunday game. Little boy is in the seat next to him. And he is trying with all of his heart to catch something. Little boy is calling out to these players. He can't even get their names right, you know. He's a little boy. He leaned over to the little boy and said, Hey, if I catch a foul ball, I'll give it to you. He said at that moment, for the first time in years, he felt the anointing. And he looked up, and a foul ball was coming his way. He'd been trying for 28 years to catch it because he wanted something for himself, and he couldn't get it. The moment he pledged it for someone else's benefit, he almost got hit in the face with the ball. Some of your lives are just like this. You don't know why you're short every month. You don't know why your car always seems to break. You don't know why. And it's not that God's against you. I mean, it's not. It's not that He's cursing you. It's it's no more a curse than to fall out of a plane and go, gravity is cursing me. When you're obedient to God, it's a means for Him to bless you. When you're not obedient to God, it's not that He's cursing you. It's that He's not blessing you and that's just like a curse. I was going to read you Leviticus 27. I changed my mind. Leviticus 27 says, Bring everything to the Levites. Belongs to them. Bring a tenth of them. But it doesn't belong to them. You're bringing it to them and it belongs to the Lord. My favorite question when somebody gives an offering for the first time is, what are you going to do with it? Well, ask God. If you had brought it to me and I was in Old Testament Israel, I would have lit it on fire in front of you and eaten what was left over. That's what they did. You didn't get a budgetary... uh, If your heart is just so burdened, it's an obstacle to you trusting Jesus, 
You have two responsibilities. One is come tell me. I will consider opening the finances of the church for you to see. That's not something I like to do because truthfully people can't handle it. And there's no way to hide our acts of giving if you get to see it. But I would consider it. The other thing I want you to do is consider going to a different church because if you cannot trust me with a dollar, you cannot trust me with your life. You can't do it. And if you have that bigger problem with something that you see in my life, give me the chance to get it right. If we can't get it right, you need to go somewhere else because you're going to live in a situation you cannot be blessed in, period. Deuteronomy 14. Let's do that. I am going to read that one. And we're going to close soon, but... Y'all beginning to see why I was scared to preach on this? Isn't it much better to be able to tell you Greek and Hebrew roots and wow you with stories about God coming to man and the Azazel? And, oh, I loved that message. I'd much rather preach on how God wants to save you and He's for you and all those things. It's much harder to preach on your responsibilities. And some of you shine, man. And some of you really don't. And I'm responsible for those that shine and those that don't. And some of you shine in some areas and not in others. And our goal is that we would all be being changed. Deuteronomy 14, verse 27. This is important to get. It's so important. Does this, by the way, Deuteronomy 14, 27. Any of you, does it begin to jar something? Wow, that 1427. Where have I heard that before? Where have I seen that before? It doesn't, does it? It's written right above the offering box. And do not neglect the Levites. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes. There are different tithing periods for different things. Bring all the tithes that that year's produce and storehouse into your towns, so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Here's the part I want you to get. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Why do you do it? Well, you do it because you care about the Levites. That's true. But you do it so that God has a means to bless you. And what is it? Is it that He wants your money? No. It's that He wants you to show Him your trust. I want to be honest. I've gotten to places in my life where calculating God's tip, 20%, 10%, whatever it is, really didn't take any trust anymore. And so he started to move on to possessions that weren't worth anything to anyone else but broke my heart like a child to give away. But he's going to find out where your trust is. In the first church we started, we got jewelry in the offering. We got titles. We got all kind of weird things. We, the biggest problem was as pastors, we didn't, we didn't know whether we should open a pond. What do you do? But I realized this was precious to somebody, and that's why they did it. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you'll get $1,000 back for giving 100 You might not get anything but a broken heart. But God will see that you trust Him. And I promise the God of heaven will come through for you. And isn't that worth it? Psalm 85 says that when you begin to be faithful, when faithfulness springs up from the earth, righteousness looks down. He's waiting to see how you respond, you personally, to this. I'm not passing an offering plate. Y'all relax. But He is waiting to see what you do. To see, am I really the owner and controller of you Or is it merely lip service? Some of you are in positions where you cannot do this. I want to be very clear. If you are a wife married to a husband that controls a checkbook and he is not a believer, do not get divorced over this. I'm not asking you to put yourself in jeopardizing positions. If you're in a situation where you receive a budgetary allotment like an allowance that is yours to control, show God you trust Him with that. But do what you can to show Him trust. Turn with me to Malachi 3. I've got one more thing to tell you. That's a lie. i got more than one, but... Turn to Malachi 3. Let's just go there and we'll see what happens. Y'all know how to find Malachi? Get to Matthew and hang a left. There's a guy named Ernest Shackleton, 
1908, he set out for the Antarctic. He wanted to be the first to have gone there on foot. And as time went on, he got to be within 97 miles of his goal, which that, that's pretty darn close when you consider how far it is from England, which is where he set out from. And uh, they had run out of food. They were down to something that the older books called hard tack, which I'm imagining is something a little bit like very hard beef jerky. And that's all they had. And he watched the men put it in their bags and go to sleep for the night. And he woke up in the middle of the night very concerned. This is a true story. About his guys because they were all feeling hunger pains. And he looked up to see his most trusted friend reaching into the bag of another man. And he was heartbroken. Right? That's stealing, isn't it? But what his friend was doing was putting his own piece of hardtack in another's bag while he slept. See, that's the heart of God. That's exactly what He's done for you. He's given you what you needed, whether you deserved it or not. Paul addressed the Greeks that he came to, said God's loved you by giving you harvest in its seasons, rain when you needed it. He's not left himself without a testimony. And they've not been honoring God. How much more does that make you responsible to do what's right? That you've experienced blessing without doing what you're supposed to do. Have you gotten a raise? Have you gotten food in your cupboards? Have you been given things that truthfully, looking at what we're looking at today, you don't deserve? How much more responsible are you? The heart of God is the guy that takes what he has and puts it in someone else's bag. And the kicker is without anyone knowing. Malachi 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. He's not looking for an offering. God owns everything anyway. He's looking for something done as an act of righteousness. Something that is showing faith that you're in right standing with God and you trust Him to take care of you. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable in the Lord, sight of the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near you, come near to you for judgment. <laughs> Ooh. Getting closer to Jesus always brings that. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, what's that say? Do not change. The same God who taught Israel this, the same principles are at work. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. Isn't that exactly what Hezekiah said? Says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Will you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you. Did you hear that? I've heard preachers say, you need to give because you'll be under a curse. What he's saying is, you're not blessed. You have not been blessed in the way that I intended. You are not the head of the nations. It's as if you're under a curse. But what is he telling this in the context of? I'm going to fix it. I just need you to be obedient. This is not God who... Have you ever heard somebody say, well, he'll get his tithe one way or another? No. No. God is not breaking your refrigerator trying to teach you a lesson. He's not doing that. He's just not keeping your refrigerator from breaking because you don't trust Him. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room. I can't think of a single Scripture in all of the Bible that says something like that. Test me in this. And I've read this book quite a few times. Galatians 6, 6 through 10, something you are to write down and read. It says, if you're receiving instruction, how could you not share all things with your instructor? 
if nothing else, if I fail you in every area, I do not fail to bring you the Word of God on a regular basis, whether it's Sundays or Wednesdays or when you call my house at 1 in the morning or when you don't invite me and I show up at your house because you need to hear something I have to say. You're not giving to Eric Stevens. This is not Eric Stevens' ministry. And that's the only reason I can stand up and preach this. You're giving to God. It just happened that the Levites in this scenario also depend upon it. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 8, he says, man, you guys were some of the first to give, and I am so glad. Then he tells them in 2 Corinthians 9, look, I'm going to send some guys before I get there because when I come, I'm coming with the Macedonians who need your help. And if you don't have it all together, you're going to be embarrassed because it's not enough to say you want to give. You actually have to do it. That's what he told them. He says, you've excelled in this area. Last year, man, you supplied my needs. But I'm coming to make sure that you uh, follow through on your pledge to supply it this year. That's what Paul said. Then we go into the alls. He says, so that God can supply all of your needs in every way at all times so that having all that you need in every way and blah, 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 blah. These scriptures I I would read to you, but you hear them every time you hear somebody talk about money. That's not the right motivation. The right motivation is because you want to show God you trust Him. Turn with me to Matthew 6. It's our last scripture and we close. There There you go, brother. Y'all know that when we say there, you're literally telling me that you're there at the place in Scripture. But where this practice is derived from is because I taught about Elijah going to the place on earth God had assigned for him so that he could receive from God what God had for him. And God flew his offerings in on ravens. So when we say we're there, let it be more than just a location in the Scripture. Let's be in the place that God has for us doing what He said to do, when He said to do it, so that He can meet our needs. Amen? Matthew 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. Doesn't that feel incomplete? Yeah, it is. Not what He said. You would think that's what He said. Don't do acts of righteousness. By the way, acts of righteousness in the religion of Judaism and Jesus was a Jew, not a Christian leader, but a Jew, was giving. Acts of righteousness was giving. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets like the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by men. I want you all to begin to seek God about ways you can show Him you trust Him. I do not want you to do these things in a way that robs you of God's favor because He's looking for a way to bless you, but He will not share His glory with you. And if you put a license plate on your car in this church that says, I tithe, I'll remove it for you or ask you to drive something else. I was in a church where that happened. I mean, why not put a bumper sticker that says, I give alms to the poor? You understand, what I'm trying to get you to do is show God you trust Him. Not all the people around you. Not even me. I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to count the things that are in that box. I don't have to make deposits. And I don't have to actually write checks to pay bills. I really am looking forward to that. Right now it is. What is announcing with a trumpet? First century security system was very simple. It was a giant jar like this one. But the neck came all the way up here and was very narrow. You could get money in it, but could not get your arm down it to get the money out. You had to take it and turn it over. This was a first century lockbox. To sound the trumpet was to walk over in the congregation of the saints and throw all of your money in it in a way that it rattled and rang as it went down the neck that looked like a trumpet so that everybody would know, oh, wow, how great you are. That makes God sick. It makes Him as sick as you not giving it all. In fact... What I didn't read in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9 says he won't receive it. It's got to be a cheerful gift. So what I'm asking you to do is search your hearts. Find ways that you can show God that you trust Him. 
If you're not in a place where you can meet the bare minimum, which was 10%, and by the way, if you had not been meeting it, the Levitical law says you add a fifth to it. You know why? Because that's the same restitution you made to a man. If I killed Craig's goat, it was not enough for me to replace his goat. I had to replace it plus one-fifth of its value because I had wronged him. We get the idea of punitive damages. But in any case, what we're looking for is for you to find a way to trust Him. If you can't do the minimum that is 10%, start somewhere and see if God does not honor it. Don't tell me you don't have a quarter in your house. Don't tell me that you don't have a dollar. Find some way. And I hope I go another 14 years without ever touching this subject again. It's fine if it's a prophecy. It's fine if it's your testimony. It's fine if it's three minutes in a message. But guys, I've taught you who you are. I should not have to teach you what to do. You understand what I'm saying? Y'all stand up and let's pray.